Good morning, everyone. I'm Charles McKnight, one of the pastoral assistants here at Christ Central Church. And Merry Christmas again. Thank you, Kelly. I have the privilege this morning of wrapping up our cinematic Christmas sermon series with a message inspired by the cult Christmas movie classic, A Christmas Story. For those of you all that have never seen the movie, here's a brief synopsis. It's 1940-something, and it's Christmas time in the fictional town of Homan, Indiana. And nine-year-old Ralphie Parker, the main character, wants one thing and only one thing for Christmas. An official, Red Rider, carbine action, 200-shot range model BB rifle with a compass in the stock. And little Ralphie would give anything and do anything to see that BB rifle under the Christmas tree on Christmas morning. But there's a problem. Poor Ralphie seems to be told by everyone he meets in northern Indiana that it's a horrible idea for a nine-year-old to have a BB rifle. Go figure. Adult after adult all tell Ralphie, you'll shoot your eye out. You've seen the movie. But Ralphie is not going to let anything steal his BB rifle hopes. Not the constant agitation from the stereotypical tag-along whiny little brother. Not the precarious situations he gets roped into by his triple dog Daria friends. Not the daily torment by Scut Farkas, a yellow-eyed Davy Crockett hat-wearing neighborhood bully. Not his self-centered, emotionally detached, perpetually frustrated, foul-mouthed, leg-lamp-worshipping father. And not even the dirty, disgruntled department store Santa and his sketch-looking and stank-acting elves can wreck Ralphie's BB rifle hope. And every once in a while, when things are starting to look real hopeless, Ralphie escapes to the realm of his imagination and pictures himself clutching a shiny new official Red Rider carbine action, 200-shot range model BB rifle with a compass in the stock. See, Ralphie keeps hope alive by keeping the consummation of his BB rifle hope firm in his heart and mind despite the hope-wrecking world around him. And yes, Ralphie does get the rifle for Christmas, and he does almost shoot his eye out. <laughs> and I think Ralphie's situation is characteristic of a common human experience. The human desire to hold on to some type of hope in a hope-wrecking world. Some of us sit here this morning dreading the potentially hope-wrecking experiences of the holiday. For some, all the wrapping and packing and fighting traffic with crazy kids rumbling in the back of the van can be a hope-wrecking experience. 
For some, it's the forced extended time with family members you'd never elect to put in your family if you had a vote, combined with all the unsettled resentments, unspoken concerns, and unaddressed issues that you know one small spark, one offhanded comment could cause everything to erupt in a massive family blow-up. This can be a hope-wrecking experience. For some, it's who won't be there for Christmas. Daddy, mama, granny, papa, a sister or brother, a daughter or a son. The holidays can be one of the most hope-wrecking times of the year. But it's not just the holidays, right? Our Mondays and hump days and every days bring their fair share of potentially hope-wrecking experiences. I look around this morning and I know for a fact that many of you have experienced some hope-wrecking situations this year. And this is totally subjective. It might just be me, but it seems like 2014 has been a disproportionately hope-wrecking year in our world and in our nation. The natural disasters this year, a violent typhoon in the Philippines, a massive earthquake in China, a, a vicious cyclone in India, and the Ebola epidemic all together leaving thousands displaced, injured, or dead. This has been a hope-wrecking year. Then there's the international conflicts, Iraqi, South Sudanese, and Syrian civil wars, Israeli-Palestinian and Ukrainian-Russian conflicts, and growing terrorist groups. Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, all together responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths just this year. This has been a hope-wrecking year. There's the rapid spread of sex, slavery, and trafficking in this world, in our country, even here in the Queens City. And there's the bodies of young black and brown men dead in American streets due to gang violence, police violence. This has been a hope-wrecking year. And all this is to make no mention of the other hope-wrecking things that plague humanity. Arthritis, autism, breast cancer, celiac disease, Diabetes and high blood pressure, AIDS and HIV, aborted babies, miscarriages, infertility and child idolatry, anxiety, depression and greed, sexism, classism, racism, ageism, fatherlessness, drug, alcohol, food and porn addictions, un and underemployment, workaholism, guilt, shame, manipulation, abuse of power, abandonment, confusion, rejection, suspicion, outrage. Open your eyes and you will see. This has been a hope-wrecking year. And as the people of God, 
We know God calls us and equips us to maintain hope in Christ as we journey through this hope-wrecking world. But like Ralphie, sometimes we need to retreat to the realm of our imaginations to get a fresh glimpse of that which we ultimately hope for. When I was a kid, my dad used to always tell me, son, always keep the end in mind. First day of school, son, begin with the end in mind. Dad, I think I wanna play college basketball. Okay, that's all fine and well. But if you wanna have a shot, you gotta keep the end in mind. What my father was trying to teach me was how critical it is to keep your eye on the prize so that when things get tough, you won't give up and you won't give in. Keep the end in mind. Brothers and sisters, we must always keep in mind our ultimate end so that we can hold fast to hope in this hope-wrecking world. And my prayer this morning is that in the next few moments, the Lord would provide us with a fresh vision of the end to keep firmly in our mind. And so with that, we now travel to the end, to the end of God's word, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. By way of background, the Apostle John writes this prophetic, apocalyptic letter as a man experiencing the full onslaught of this hope-wrecking world. His faithfulness to preaching and teaching of the gospel landed him in exile on a small Greek island called Patmos. And it's from Patmos, from exile, that he writes this letter of revelation to the major churches back in Asia Minor mainly to encourage them to hold on to faith in the midst of their own share of persecution and suffering. In this letter, John basically declares to God's people throughout the ages that I've seen the end. I've peered down the dark tunnel of history. And at the end is a bright light of Christ's victory over all that assaults our hope. And in our text this morning, John pulls out all the stops and brings out the brightest colors to paint for the churches in Asia Minor and for you and me this morning, a climactic, glorious, awe-inspiring portrait of the end of our hope. And what John sees here at the end is new, all new. In verse one of our text, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then for the remainder of chapter 21, he unpacks the newness that awaits us at the end. This morning, we explore verses 1 through 8, where John sees a renewed environment for a renewed people to enjoy a renewed relationship with God. A renewed environment for a renewed people to enjoy a renewed relationship with God. First, a renewed environment. Now, we must begin by remembering that our environment, the totality of creation, was originally all good. Y'all know the story. Genesis 1, 
when with a divine boom of nothing but his voice, God created in six days the earth and everything in it. Space, time, light, the atmosphere, land, plants, sun, moon, and stars, the sea, flying creatures, and land animals. And God wrapped up his creative labor by creating something like him in his own image and likeness. He created man and woman, Adam and Eve, endowed with authority over all the rest of his perfect creation. And when God finished, he stepped back, he peeped his handiwork, and he said, this is good. As a matter of fact, this is really, really good. But we know it didn't stay really good for long. God's good creation went bad when sin infiltrated and contaminated perfection. Genesis 3, Satan in the form of a serpent meets Eve in the garden, tempts her to reject the perfection and fellowship God had created for her and her husband and all their descendants. She eats the forbidden fruit and so does Adam and the rest is tragic history. God meets them and tells them, because of your sin, cursed is the ground. Cursed is the environment because of you. And the apostle Paul fleshing out this environmental curse says in Romans 8:22, the whole creation groans together in the pains of childbirth. The whole creation, all animate and inanimate human parts of the creation, nature, every planet and galaxy, dirt and grass, oak trees and grapevines, plankton and killer whales, the lion and the lamb, all sit on the edge of their seats waiting for the curse to be reversed. And in Revelation 21, we see the reverse of the curse. Here, God renews the environment so that it will be able to endure the full revelation of God and his people. Take a look back at verse one. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then drop down to verse five. John says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Now understand, new here doesn't mean that God just starts all over from scratch. He doesn't just ball up the paper of his creation. The idea here is much more of a renewing. See, even though creation is smudged by sin, God's not going to destroy what he's already in the process of redeeming. Every millimeter of redemption God has worked in his creation since the fall is eternal. It will last. However, what will be done away with is all that threatens God's people and their relationship with him and their relationship with one another. And this threat is symbolized throughout the book of Revelation through the imagery of the sea. Therefore, John says in verse 1, that when he saw the end, the sea was no more. 
No more sea means there's no longer any natural dangers or obstacles or dividers or political boundaries that separate us from God or from one another. There will be no more partitions to unity in this renewed environment. Typhoons in the Philippines and cyclones in India will be no more. Geographic and political boundaries will be no more. And all the socio-ethnic, racial, cultural barriers that separate God's people will be no more. Now in verses five through six, we see exactly who is responsible for this renewing of the environment. It says, and, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Understand by this point in John's letter, it would have been known that the I am who is seated on the throne is none other than God himself. And God decides to describe himself in verse six as what? The alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. As you may know, alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. And mentioning the opposite poles of something, alpha and omega, is a literary device used to emphasize the totality of everything that lies in between. It's like when we say it's for the young and the old. Obviously, we got middle-aged folks in mind, too. Or when we say, I searched high and low for something, we, we mean we looked everywhere. When, when Charlotte and I got married, we made vows to stay together through what? Better or worse, richer or poor, sickness or in health. What's in view is not the extremes, but we use the extremes to encapsulate everything in between, right? So when God says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, He's saying, I'm everything from A to Z. I'm the first word and the last word and every word in between. So just like I made all things perfect at the alpha of creation, I'm going to recreate, renew everything perfectly in the omega of my new heaven and my new earth. Therefore, I am can say at the end of verse five, look back there with me. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And at the beginning of verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. In other words, God declares that this promise of a renewed environment for a renewed people to experience a renewed relationship with him has divine authentication. God proclaims, I don't need anyone or anything to underwrite this promise. I sign my name on it, Alpha and Omega. So these words are trustworthy. These words are true. Brothers and sisters, in the end, the Alpha and Omega will completely renew this environment. And God renews the environment so that it will be fitting for his renewed people. Look with me at verse two. John says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. The holy city and New Jerusalem are, are two ways scripture describes the church, God's people throughout the ages, which John tells us in chapter five and seven will be from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And specifically, John sees God's people as a bride, a multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic, multinational bride. Ethnically, this bride is part Greek, part Jewish, part Ethiopian, part Korean, part Puerto Rican, part German, and everything in between. Linguistically, she's part Arabic, part Nepali. Part Mandarin, part Swedish, part Spanish, part Zulu, part English, part Kurdish, and everything in between. And nationalistic, nationalistically, she's part Iraqi and part Egyptian, part Canadian and part Guatemalan, part Somalian and part Bulgarian, part American and part Russian, and everything in between. And John sees this gorgeous, multi-ethnic, multilinguistic, multinational bride adorned for her husband, Jesus Christ. You know, it's hard to find an ugly bride. I'm serious. I mean, it seems like everyone looks good on their wedding day. You might not have been hitting on much on the day before. <laughs> you might not be hitting on much on the day after, but on that day, you look good. Fellas too, I know I look so fresh and so clean on my wedding day. <laughs> and likewise, at the end, this multi-everything bride is all done up to level 10. As it says, she's adorned for her husband. Now, understand John's original audience would have understood the significance of the passive nature of getting adorned or prepared for a wedding. Back then, in preparation for the big day, the bride would receive the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of the luxury spa package, like the $500 one down at the Ballantine Resort. She would be bathed and oiled and perfumed and groomed and dressed in beautiful attire. And all this preparing and adorning would be done to and for her. She wouldn't do it herself. See, on that great day, brothers and sisters, on the day of the consummation of our hope, We'll be dressed to the nines, but it won't be because we bathed or oiled or fragranced or dressed ourselves. You'll be so fresh and so clean, gleaming in, in blinding white attire of unspotted holiness and righteousness only because you were washed. Your old, filthy, stank-looking garments of sinfulness and brokenness will be once and for all, finally and permanently bleached by the mercy and grace of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? And after Jesus himself adorns the bride, 
he then turns around and presents this perfect bride, this renewed multitude of his people back to himself at the marriage altar. So now the atmosphere and decor has been set by the renewed environment. God's people have been renewed as a bride adorned for her husband. And now the marriage ceremony can commence. A renewed relationship between God and his people begins. Look with me at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. God himself will be with them. We all know what it's like to cherish an item that reminds us or connects us to someone we love who's no longer there with us. A sweatshirt with his cologne scent. The letter she wrote. That picture of us together. We cherish these items, but we'd never choose the item over the one whom we cherish through it. I love the pictures of my wife on our wedding day, but I'd rather have my wife. Brothers and sisters, God has given us all kinds of cherished items in this life to know and experience and remember him with. He's given us nature that declares his glory. He's left us his words found in the Bible. He invites us to experience him in part during this, this corporate worship service. And he's given us the gift of his Holy Spirit. And we should be thankful for it all. But I'd rather have Jesus himself. I don't know about you. But sometimes this hope wrecking world gets to be a little too much for me. And it's in those times that I'd almost do anything to experience the full, unmitigated, untainted, unending presence of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because yes, yes. I know that in the fullness of his presence, when, 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 when I and we experience the unfiltered, renewed relationship with God, all wrongs will be made right and all that's sad will be made untrue. Look at verse 4. John says that when God's people are finally with God himself, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He will wipe away every tear of sorrow from our eyes. I cried in college when I got the news that my grandmother was killed in a car accident. I cried when I received a diagnosis of stage four cancer. 
And I cried when we miscarried our first little girl. I cry sometimes when my sinful temptations overtake me. And I cry sometimes when I hear about yet another young black man who looks like me having been gunned down. Oh, but Jesus. Jesus promises me, he promises you that he will on that great day wipe away every tear from our eyes. Not a few tears, not even most tears, but every tear this hope-wrecking world has pulled from our eyes, he'll take his thumb and wipe away. And there'll be no more new tears. John says, no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? Because the former things have passed away. Which means that everything that would cause tears is tossed out with the sea that we talked about in verse 1. No more slaughtering by Taliban gunmen. No more systematic injustice. No more sinful inclinations or evil temptations. No more cancer diagnosis. No more pains from poverty. No more fear, depression, or disappointment. No more banged up, beat down, bruised, or battered. And no more death. John says that death shall be no more. That cold finger of mortality that has pulled every human being down to the grave will be lopped off and tossed out with the sea. Brothers and sisters, I don't know exactly what you've been through in the past. I don't know what you're going through this morning. And I have no clue what tomorrow holds for you. But I declare to you this morning that there's no hope-wrecking experience in your past, present, or future that won't be made untrue in the end. Earth has no sorrows that heaven will not heal. Amen? Amen? And with all that mess out of the way, we will finally be free to drink from the spring of our renewed relationship with Christ forever. Look back with me at verse six. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Now, in this life, we, God's people, do have the privilege of drinking from the fountain of his forgiveness of sin. And we truly experience, in part, the, the refreshment of fellowship with God and with one another. But in the new heaven and the new earth, when he will dwell with us, when our relationship with him is renewed perfectly, we will have full access to the spring of living water, enabling us to experience complete joy and pure pleasure and peace in the glorious presence of our Savior forevermore. People of God, 
This is your end. A renewed environment for a renewed people to enjoy a renewed relationship with God. Our text this morning concludes with a final word of encouragement and a final warning from God himself. Verse 7, the encouragement. Look there with me. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And verse 8, the warning. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I want us to understand that all those people included in the promise of verse seven were guilty on at least some level of the sins in verse eight. Remember, there's a reason the bride had to be prepared for the groom. She was dirty and she couldn't wash herself. But there's a fundamental difference between those heirs of the promise in verses one through seven and the recipients of eternal punishment in verse eight. The difference is who or what they look to to deal with their brokenness. See, those in verse 7, the, the conquerors, are those who chose to tap into the stream of living water, a stream full of mercy and grace and hope to battle in this hope-wrecking world. And this is a stream found in Christ and in Christ alone. The conquerors are those who fled to Christ and didn't settle for the wicked deficient, temporary, or destructive, fake sources of hope like those in verse 8. Those in verse 7 will experience the renewed environment, a renewed self in a renewed relationship forever with God. Those in verse 8 will experience none of it. They will experience eternal separation from God. God says their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the Lord's encouragement. And this is the Lord's warning. Begin with the end in mind. My dad used to always say brothers and sisters what we have seen in our text this morning is the end the goal the target of our hope as believers as you enter the potentially hope wrecking time of the holidays and Mondays and every days enter with this glorious end in mind but again this is the glorious end for those who have placed their faith in Christ 
in this life. If you're here this morning and you know deep down that you've been out here trying to make this thing work on your own, if you know that you have rejected allowing Jesus to be the exclusive Lord and Savior of your life, then this hope-wrecking world will wreck you. You won't eternally survive it. The hopelessness you feel is terrifying and it's real. But today, today, you can exchange real hopelessness for real hopefulness that will survive in this life and be fulfilled in the next. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you for the sneak peek of our end. We pray that you...